Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. You're listening to On the Environment, a podcast series from the Yale Center for Environmental Law and Policy. For more information, visit the website at envirocenter.yale.edu. Hi, you're listening to On the Environment, a podcast of the Yale Center for Environmental Law and Policy. My name is Angel Shu, and I direct the Environmental Performance Index Project here. I'm joined today by Mark Levy, the Deputy Director of Columbia University's Center for International Earth Science Information Network, and Dr. Drew Schindel, who's an atmospheric chemist and climate change specialist at NASA's Goddard Institute for Space Studies in New York City. Mark and Drew recently partnered with the Yale Center for Environmental Law and Policy on a new initiative looking at data challenges in global air quality, which we'll be talking about today. Mark and Drew, thank you for joining me. Nice to be here. Thanks for having us. Okay, great. So the first question is about the project itself. Air pollution is clearly a global topic of concern, particularly in rapidly developing countries. News of extreme levels of air pollution, for example, in China, have dominated headlines of late. So where does global monitoring fit into this picture, and where are there knowledge gaps? Well, global monitoring is very important when you're trying to compare things from one place to another. There's a lot of stations that are located in urban areas, uh, single points in different places around the world, and those are quite valuable, um, but they leave a lot of territory outside the cities uncovered, and they're not necessarily using the same monitoring techniques from place to place. So we have a lot of knowledge gaps in terms of trying to get a global picture of what's really going on. Yes, and um, along those efforts, one of the projects that, Mark, you've collaborated with with us for the last uh, 15 years or so is the Environmental Performance Index. So I was wondering if you could speak to the role that indicators and efforts like the EPI play in helping to address some of these knowledge and monitoring gaps. So what we found is that for a number of environmental problems, the the rate of degradation in the environmental conditions is advancing at a faster pace than our ability to, to track these issues with, uh, with data and observations and monitoring systems. And so we have an unfortunate condition where the, the, the impacts from the environmental degradation are accelerating, but our ability to understand and manage them is uh, advancing more slowly. One of the air quality is one of the the you know, perfect examples where this problem is. So uh, we have you know recently transitioned from moving to a majority urban world. Air quality problems are worse in the urban areas, um, and air quality problems are worse in recently industrializing countries. So we have a kind of perfect storm brewing of um, expectations that air quality problems are uh, going to get rapidly worse, precisely at a time when we've been disinvesting from the basic monitoring and observational systems that will let us understand and respond to them. Yes, and going along with that last point, for air pollution monitoring and data, where have you seen areas in which it's improved quite a bit, and where are other areas where data has not progressed as far? I think the biggest differences are, are regional. Mm. Um, 
there's there's kind of a natural evolution if you look at the the life cycle of air quality monitoring in the areas that industrialized first in in Europe and North America, where in the early stages the air pollution problem presents itself in a way that's just completely obvious to people, um, just big thick smoke that uh, makes people sick and you know kills the young and elderly and and so on, and just the, the visible evidence that there's a problem is enough to trigger action. Um, that's quickly followed by a stage where people want to know more about, you know, well, how serious is it? What are the things that I maybe can't see that might be hurting me? And so then you have a, a response in which people monitor things that um, are less visible or perhaps completely invisible, such as ozone. Um, and then finally you have a stage where people move from worrying about the individual pollutants to how the, the pollutions are interacting in a, in a system that operates both locally and regionally and spills over into global dynamics. Um, so, so Western Europe, for example, went through this complete evolution over the course of about 50 years. Um, in the developing world, um, you have people operating at different juncture points. So, so China is more or less at a stage where they're transitioning from the stuff I can see makes me angry and I want people to do something about it to, you know, I want to know even more than that. But they haven't yet come to the, the more um, advanced stage of worrying about how the air quality problems interact with, with global systems. Much of the, the less um, wealthy parts of the world haven't even gotten that far. And so we have big, you know, cities and many poor countries throughout the world um, where the visible air quality is not yet triggering uh, meaningful action. I think that's an excellent segue to talk about the role that indicators can play in helping to make some of the invisible visible. And so last year we started on this effort, which we'll f refer to as the Guiding Stars Project, to really guide policymakers in terms of pointing out needed investments for key environmental issues in order to drive the next generation of, of, of uh, environmental indicators. And so, Mark or Drew, I was wondering if you might be able to describe this project and why, from, from your side of this collaboration, you think it was important to focus first on air pollution. Go ahead. Um, I'll, I'll start this, and then Drew can take over on the more technical um, merits. Okay. Um, I think the, the primary calculation we made was um, was one having to do with the intersection between the, the science of the issue, um, the, the evolution of the problem, and the, the political space. Um, so in our judgment, this was a, a problem that was getting worse um, at a time when the science was leading us to accelerate our concern about the damages from air quality. Um, you know, each new phase of, of research has shown that air quality is doing more harm to humans and ecosystems than we thought before. Um, but at the same time, our ability to, to understand and monitor these dynamics was actually going backwards. We were uh, losing uh, ground air stations um, instead of increasing them. Um, in addition to that kind of diagnosis of the problem, there was a, a sense that there was an opportunity um, from new technologies that uh, opened up new possibilities for how to measure these things cost-effectively. Um, 
as well as new scientific understandings that led us to um, realize that if we were going to, to measure air quality and create useful indicators, it wasn't going to be sufficient to simply copy uh, the history of the rest of the world um, and sort of repeat the North American and Europe uh, example, but rather we had to do things in a more sophisticated way and pay more attention to the, the interaction of these pollutants and look at them in an integrated manner. Mm. You know, one of one of the things, you know, the basic role and motivation for some of the the indicating indicator work is really, you know, you have situations where different parts of of the government might be working at different ends, and one is really pushing for economic growth, one is pushing for clean air, and they might have policies that completely uh, contradict one another rather than reinforcing one another. So we really wanted to bring what indicators we could to bear to give that information uh, so that policies could, if they chose, be made you know, to kind of harmonize the different goals. And air quality really seemed ripe for that because the of the, some of the new technology that Mark was just talking about. You know, one of the things you want to avoid is having different measuring systems in one place versus another when you're, you might end up uh, getting a comparison of these indicators from one country to another. And so the new, new ability of satellites to take the same measurement everywhere on the planet really provides a way to give you the same, uh, the same type of information everywhere in the world. And, and we looked at several different classes of pollutants. For particulate, we're starting to get information that really can be very useful to try to characterize the health impacts of this particulate. For ozone, it's just kind of in the nascent stage where we're beginning to get that, but it requires different types of measurements from satellites, uh, multiple different types of measurements simultaneously to really get us get at the, the ground level ozone. And then for others like mercury, you know, it's a pollutant that travels through the air, but most people, the people get the most of the mercury that, that affects their, their bodies through uh, fish and through eating. And so you really, measuring the amount in the air is not necessarily what you want to know. You want to know how much is reaching the places where it's then ingested by fish, which are then consumed by people. And so first, there, there's a range of both technologies and the type of indicator you want to get to. But we were really thinking that we could uh, use the, the current and next generation of technology could, could provide a vast improvement for air quality in particular. So, Drew and Mark, you both mentioned the role of technology and satellites and, in particular, how improved technology can uh, improve, I guess, the global picture of, of monitoring. But I was wondering if you could also discuss some of the other factors that you also brought up, such as some of the political con constraints that also prevent a more complete picture of air pollution monitoring. Well, on the, on the politics side, um, monitoring is often occupying a, a kind of dual role, where on the one hand, it it's responsive to an expressed political desire to, to manage a problem more effectively. Um, so you may have, you know, a society decide that, say, it wants to get lead out of children's bloodstreams, and so it sets up a, a monitoring system to, to track that and, 
the role of monitoring is to, to make sure that society's goals are being met. Um, but it would be a mistake to think that you know the monitoring always follows the politics. Um, in, in the real world, monitoring can also often get started um, before the politics have really settled out. And in most of the environmental situations, this is the case. The you know the the Mauna Loa uh, CO2 concentration measurement system, you know, which recently was in the headlines because of it passing the 400 parts per million threshold, mm, right. um, was, is a clear example where that was set up long before anybody politically, you know, had made any commitment to reducing CO2 emissions. But but having that system in place, you know, played a critical role in drawing attention to the problem and giving giving people who were motivated to try to make things better um, a, a common metric for describing the problem. Uh, so I think at the global level, we're more or less at, at that kind of stage where it's fairly clear that if you put all the countries in the world and said, you know, what are you willing to commit to to solve the, the global air quality problem, you wouldn't really get much of a uh, consensus. Um, however, by encouraging countries to participate in a in a baseline monitoring system, you will enable those actors that are motivated to try to you know, encourage societies to do better, uh, to to be able to make reference to to real numbers, real data, uh, you know, use maps, uh, the kind of visualizations that can help uh, turn the public discourse around in, in a meaningful way. Right. I think so, you've yeah. Oh, sorry. Um, I was just going to say, I think you've definitely described the positive, the ideal picture, I think, of, of where we want global monitoring to head and, and where or how we want data to be shared and, and to and to point out and identify areas of, of concern. Um, but there are a lot of countries, particularly in China, which, which I study very closely, where a lot of countries are worried that if the data are out there and publicly available, that it's going to make them look really bad and there will be increasing international pressure for them to drastically reduce their economic growth or try try to implement drastic pressures uh, or, or um, sorry, policies to reduce their num- the number of cars on the road or to switch their energy mix, and so um, I was wondering if you could also speak to some of those political constraints as well. Um, well, the politics is called the art of the possible. So what you need to do is is find um, you know workarounds where there is a political blockage. Um, the you know I spent a fair amount of time studying the evolution of air quality politics in the in 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 Europe. Mm in the, the 70s, 80s, and 90s. And there was a key juncture, for example, there in the mid-80s when there was general pressure to monitor forest health uh, so that there could be a common European strategy for diagnosing the degree to which long-range air pollution was causing forest dieback. And the British didn't want to do it. They said, you know, A, we don't believe it, B, even if uh, it might be true. We don't care. Uh, so they refused to participate in the early days. Um, and so what happened was Friends of the Earth, UK, um, trained their staff in the methods that were being used in the, the continental European forest monitoring systems. And they went out and did a comprehensive survey of the state of British forest health. Um, 
and it was peer-reviewed. Uh, it was following the standard procedures, um, and it revealed that there was actually a lot of forest uh, health problem in the UK. So within two years, the British government took over that role, um, and they they uh, very quickly, you know, joined in the, the European-wide monitoring system. And within five years of that, they had um, uh, the issue had completely turned around within the UK, where now people were actively worried not about Swedish lakes or German forests, but British forests. Mm. Um, and it helped turn around the politics quite quickly. So, you know, I think we have to be flexible uh, today. And if, if one party doesn't want to play the game, um, you find other people who can play it with you. And these days with, you know, the cost of measurement, you know, relatively low, the new technologies open, and the Internet speeding up communications, uh, I think there's lots of room for maneuver. Yeah, absolutely. And moving moving forward um, from from this context, I was wondering if you could both talk about some of the preliminary conclusions from this effort and the next generation of, of air pollution indicators, what, what they might look like and what we can take away, at least preliminarily. I know that this effort is still ongoing, but what we might be able to take away and conclude from, the, from this uh, project. Well, uh, I think it really depends on uh, which pollutants we're talking about. And I mentioned mercury before. That's a, uh, a really challenging one because we really have to figure out which part of the food chain needs monitoring. And so it's not really as straightforward as some of the others. Persistent organic pollutants are another issue where there's really a whole family of those, and they're not suitable for remote sensing thus far. So I think we are, we are a ways away from having a global um, ability to monitor either persistent organics or mercury. Um, we're, we're getting further on mercury by having a lot of measurements taken you know, in, in marine uh, ecosystems. But it, the methodology of exactly how we want to do that still requires more work. But I think when it comes to ozone in particulate, we really are at the verge of being able, or even already are able to, uh, to some extent, to include the global measurements from space, which have been evaluated and ground truth against these, you know, what, what is there from the surface network. And those can really reveal uh, interesting patterns across the different regions. And so this is the kind of thing where, where we were just talking about, you know, the case of China, when some of the space-based measurements have been compared with emission inventories produced by the government, you know, they show pretty good uh, air quality achievements with flat or even declining emissions. But then the measurements from space or from several pollutants are not consistent with that. So it really does hold people uh, accountable to some extent. And you can really say, you know, even if there's a limited accuracy because these things are being measured by a, an orbiting satellite, they can really tell you what the trends are over time and they can compare different regions. So bringing in ozone in particulate, I think the time is already ripe and, and it's just going, the quality of the data should just improve over the next few few years. Drew, I'm so glad that you brought up that last point because it's a perfect lead-in to the next question, which is the link between air quality and air pollution monitoring and climate change, which has been referred to as the defining issue of our era. And as a lead author for the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the scientific body 
uh, for climate change. I was wondering if you could talk more about this link between air pollution and climate change, uh, particularly because already, I think here at the center, we've received a lot of questions as to whether or not the findings that will come out of this effort might have any relationship or bearing to to the IPCC or um, some of the, the efforts that have been um, put together recently to coordinate countries on considering these two issues in tandem rather than disparately? Right. Well, I think, you know, I, I mentioned before that one of the ideas of the indicators is to allow people to make decisions that span multiple issues. And there it was economics and environment at the same time. But it, the same is true for air quality and climate. And as, as you pointed out, these really are linked issues. And aside from the well-mixed greenhouse gases like CO2, uh, the main contributors to climate change are particulate and ozone. And so what we decide to do about air quality, which is primarily issues of particulate and ozone, uh, can really have an effect on climate change. And it's it's a complicated effect because some of these pollutants lead to additional warming or compounding the effect of CO2, uh, but some of them have offset or cooling and have offset quite a bit of the, of the warming. And so we really have to consider both the air quality effects and the climate implications of our air quality policies. If we pull out the pollutants, the particulates that have been masking some of the CO2 warming, very quickly, we could have extremely rapid rates of climate change, uh, which could be very damaging to ecosystems that can't adapt to such quick changes. If we target those that are warming more aggressively than we target those that are cooling, we could actually mitigate climate change. But really having the information to treat both at the same time is likely to get us a more efficient, cost-effective, and climate-effective uh, policy. Right. But is it is it true that as of now, where the science currently stands, there's not really an agreed-upon threshold of particulates, for example, that are kind of ideal to maintain a certain climate? And so right now, I think um, there are a lot of information unknowns with respect to these two issues. Um, is there anything that you think that, that our, this particular effort with indicators might be able to fill in some of these unknowns and some of these gaps? Well, I, I think our indicators are, are based on observations. You know, this kind of goes back to the, the politics of the monitoring and many of the space-based uh, measurements in particular, these are not really designed for air quality at all. Mm. Uh, it happens that you can get air quality rela relevant information out of these. But those same platforms taking these measurements of ozone and aerosols in the atmosphere are really helping to unravel their contribution to climate change. I think what the indicators can do is provide a greater uh, level of visibility so that it really makes more sense to countries when they make policy to, to consider these issues in tandem rather than having one group working on air quality and thinking that is really just a local scale issue and thinking climate is an entirely separate issue driven by different pollutants and operating at different scales. And so I think hopefully these can, these can help tie those issues together more in people's minds. Mm, yes, absolutely. Mark, could you tell us what's coming up for the EPI and also this effort to design the next generation of, of indicators? Well, the, 
the most important breakthrough for us in the last EPI was the construction of a consistent time series within each indicator and for the aggregate index as a whole. Um, and I think that this is clearly where the return on investment is, is biggest. Mm. Um, the environmental performance indicator community um, for the last 20 years or so has been forced to content itself with largely comparative static snapshots um, because there's just not a very good depth and consistency of measurement. Um, and that's, that's really quite problematic because you, you really learn a tremendous amount more about what's going on globally and within a single country when you can look at the trends. Uh, you know, one of the clear examples that came out of the last EPI was the, the global fish uh, situation where uh, the picture pretty much across the board is one where, you know, things look quite horrible. Um, but when we looked at the, the time series data, there were a handful of countries that had made remarkable improvements. Um, Namibia was one that really stood out. And when we, we dug into what was going on behind the scenes, we found a story where, you know, Namibia had made a conscious effort to uh, seize control of its uh, exclusive economic zone, uh, kick out the uh, foreign fleets that were over-exploiting their fish stocks, and, and manage the resource more sensibly. Um, that kind of portrait would have been impossible to see uh, without the time series. But what we can do now for um, for um, marine fisheries, we want to be able to do for more and more issues. Uh, and so we want to, that's one reason that we chose to invest in this air quality effort, because globally we don't have a time series on air quality, uh, but we really need one if we're going to be able to understand what's going on and, uh, and evaluate the efforts we're undertaking to improve the situation. Okay, thank you so much, Mark Levy and Drew Shindell, for joining me today on this podcast. Thanks, Angel. Thanks. Okay, thank you.